if you drive through like Orange County, you'll see a lot of the hills on the freeways that are just covered in yellow in the spring. And you're like, oh, it's so beautiful, yellow hills. But that's all like invasive black mustard. Oh. <laughs> so while yes, it is beautiful flowers, they're not native to this landscape. Hello, and welcome to Golden State Naturalist, a podcast for anyone who's ever walked by a weed-covered vacant lot or driven past a yellow hillside monoculture and fantasized about what that same place could look like as a complete and thriving native habitat. I'm Michelle Fulner, and today you're going to hear about the process of transformation from the degraded landscape into the restored, biodiverse one. Because today we're talking ecological restoration with Billy Sale, whose voice you just heard. In this episode, you'll learn about steaming soil, restoration success stories and less successful stories, tricking seeds, disgruntled neighbors, the difference between ecological restoration and restoration ecology, non-native pathogens, smoke water, reference sites, hundreds of acorns, trucks full of water, the ethical considerations of restoration, and how each of us can get involved to create beautiful wild spaces that support life and abundance all around us. If you're hearing this and it's resonating with you, I hope you'll help me continue to spread this message by supporting the show on Patreon. By donating as little as $4 a month, you can also gain access to all kinds of video and audio extras, get your questions asked when I go out on interviews, participate in Zoom AMA hangouts, and more. $12 a month patrons also get a little tiny special bonus gift each season. Just sign up before the end of February to receive that so I can make sure to order enough for everyone before the end of this season. You can find me on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Michelle Fulner. That's Michelle with two L's and Fulner is F-U-L-L-N-E-R. You can also support the show without spending any money at all by simply sharing your favorite episode with a friend or maybe a stranger you bump into at your local nature center, or by rating and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Lastly, one of the absolute best ways you can help is by making sure you're following the show wherever you listen so you get updated about new episodes as they come out. Okay, but now let's get to the episode. Billy Sale graduated from the University of Hawaii with her MS in Natural Resource Management, emphasis in terrestrial ecology, and has managed the native plant nursery at the California Botanic Garden for nine years, where I don't think it's possible to count how many native plants she's helped propagate and get in the ground across many, many types of California ecosystems. So without further ado, let's hear from Billy Sale on Golden State Naturalist. showed me around the California Botanic Garden's native plant nursery all the way back in August. It was morning when we met up and still pretty cool, but the sun that day in Claremont, just east of LA, already seemed to be examining us through a magnifying glass, hinting at the intensity of the day to come. The first thing Billy showed me as we stood just outside of the nursery was also the loudest. So we have a steam generator and we have a soil wagon, so we pump the into the wagon, which has soil from our soil supplier. I want you to imagine the biggest, ruggedest radio flyer you have ever seen. 
forest green, at least four feet tall, and with big rubber tires. It's basically the monster truck of wagons. And then right next to it, where all the noise is coming from, a generator with a water tank on it, multiple gauges and tubes sticking out, snaking their way up into the wagon under the tarp covering the soil. I'll put a picture or video of this on social media so you can see it for and yourself. we steam it. We want to steam it to 140 degrees Fahrenheit for 30 consecutive minutes. And that is to kill any unwanted pathogens that might have come from the soil supplier. Wow. And so we do that to all of our soil before we will use it for a restoration project. Steaming the quantity of soil used by the botanic garden is no small feat. When we walked away from the steam generator and soil wagon and into the main growing area, a massive screened-in shade structure, we were surrounded by thousands of plants. And as I looked around, I was struck by the incredible diversity of species represented there. How many plant species do you think you have right here in this nursery? Oh gosh, I have no idea. I mean, it looks like like hundreds? Yeah, hundreds probably. Yeah, it is, hundreds I look around and I see ones. all different looking plants. Yeah, and so for restoration, we grow from coastal all the way to desert and to mountains. So we have mixed in plants for LAX dunes hmm. with Santa Clarita area for the Angeles National Forest to the city of Pasadena. Hmm. I have like all different plants sort of like mixed in together. If you listen to the native plants episode of this podcast with Naomi Fraga, which was actually recorded on the same day as this interview, but in the Botanic Garden itself, you know that this kind of diversity is part of what makes California special. The state is home to 6,500 species of native plants, many of them occurring only in very specific habitats, soil types, or small geographic areas. In many cases, these diverse plants experience wildly different environmental factors and cues that tell them when to germinate. The plants have figured out over the span of millions of years that they'll do best after a fire, for instance, or perhaps after a lot of rain or after a few cold months. But these kinds of factors aren't always easy to replicate in a plant nursery. Thankfully, Billy and her team know a trick or two. So we're always trying to trick the seed into thinking that mm. it is the time to grow. So we're either putting it in the fridge and making it think it's winter, mm. or we will water it in with what we call smoke water. And so we're making it think like a fire came through here. Smoke water? Smoke How water. How do you make smoke water? It's this, I don't know, it's this really nasty stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Is it? Yeah, it smells like a really bad barbecue. <laughs> oh my God. So is there somehow actually smoke? Yeah, like no, it's not, but it smells like it. It's called forest flavors. Whoa, and so but, it's something chemically tricks the seed into thinking that it's gotten smoke yeah, on it. Yeah, and so I don't know exactly what it's made of, but it does smell like wow. a really bad barbecue. <laughs> Um, really when funny. we make it and so we'll water in the seeds with that and so sometimes we will burn them too but the smoke water is usually sufficient mm -hmm. on them and so we'll do all sorts of things we'll soak them in water if they're used to coming up like after a heavy rain we'll soak them in water mm -hmm. uh, and so to try to trick the seed into thinking now's the time to grow but this whole song and dance with the seeds isn't even the only way the nursery propagates plants they also use cuttings of some species in fact, when I walked in, a crew of interns was working industriously on cutting down a massive pile of twigs, willow if I remember correctly, which would then be stuck in a growing medium to root and be kept in one of the large greenhouses at the nursery. The theme that stood out to me as I walked around the nursery with Billy was that there was life bursting forth in every direction. 
which of course is one of the main goals of restoration, to promote not just a few species of plants and subsequently animals, but to support entire thriving food webs full of strange and beautiful things many of us have never seen before, right alongside the common species. After the tour of the nursery, I had seen a glimpse of the many complexities of restoration work, and I couldn't wait to sit down with Billy and hear more about the process. The full conversation includes not only how restoration is done, but also some important ethical questions about this work and great stories from the field. We'll be back with that after a short break. Okay, story time. When I was a little kid, I had this thing about my socks and my mom still remembers this. You can see the look of just abject horror in her eyes every time this subject comes up because she would try to put my socks on me and I would have a full meltdown. Like I could not handle the way that they felt on my feet. And I've just always been sensitive about the way fabrics feel on my body. Anything that is too scratchy or has a tag or that isn't snug enough in the right places or is too snug in the wrong places is out. So it can be really hard for me to find clothes that I like. Enter Embody. So I recently got my first Bodhi jumpsuit. It's like wearing water that was woven into fabric by fairies. It's so soft. I'm actually wearing it right now, sitting here recording this. And I've been doing a lot of different activities today, like yoga and work and podcasting. And it has been the perfect outfit for all of those activities. Here's some other things I love about it. One, it is 100% made in California. Products are cut and sewn by hand in a woman-owned factory. They also care about sustainability and use mostly plant-based fabrics like eucalyptus and beechwood, and sometimes even reclaimed fabrics that would have gone to waste otherwise. So if you wanna get yourself a very cute, very versatile onesie with pockets, head on over to embody.co. That's I-M-B-O-D-H-I dot C-O. And when you check out, use the code GOLDENSTATENATURALIST15 to get $15 off your first order. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line it's possible complex specialty care that cares about your roi it's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions that's wonder made possible learn more at evernorth.com wonder and now onto the full interview i just i'm curious about how you got interested in restoration I got into restoration in kind of a roundabout, maybe like reverse way. Hmm. 
I sort of thought about what I didn't want to do, which was like an office job and being like indoors. And I thought about like the type of people like I wanted to work with. And so I kind of like played around in my head and taking classes and like a bunch of different fields to sort of see what fit within my criteria. And so I wanted to work with my hands. I wanted to be outdoors. I didn't want to be like bogged down on the computer. And I don't really like being around like a ton of people like customer service and that sort of stuff. So I wanted a field where I guess people weren't like super aggressive or <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> like in your face. And yes. so like plants is usually a place where people are, are more introverted and laid back. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to do something where I was working out like in the environmental sort of field. So like I said, I took a bunch of different classes. I volunteered a bunch of different places. So I just sort of settled on on, this is what feels right to me. This is what I'm interested in. This makes me feel good. Like when I go home, I don't feel like, oh, I did all that for nothing or stuff like that. So it wasn't like I knew all along this is what I wanted to do. I sort of came around to it. Yeah. And so I usually always recommend people like try out different things to make sure, yeah, you really like it. Billy is so correct about this. You may recall from previous episodes that I've spent the last 10 years teaching middle and high school English. But before I did that, I thought I wanted to be an elementary school teacher until I actually went and observed a fifth grade class for 40 hours over the course of a couple months. Whoo! Look, the, the kids were lovely, but I was very, very tired at the end of the day, just from observing. I don't even remember helping, like, at all. Elementary school teachers just know that you have all of my respect. And just for fun, at various points in my life, I have also wanted to be a tiger trainer, a marine biologist, National Geographic photographer, SNL star, and zookeeper. Actually, I still want to be all of those things. If anybody knows about any job openings. So, okay, we're talking about restoration, but maybe some of my listeners aren't really sure what that even means. So how would you define, would you call it ecological restoration? Is that kind of the term you use? Yeah, so it's ecological restoration, and that's like the practice of doing restoration versus like restoration ecology, which is like the study oh, okay. of restoration practices. And mm -hmm. I think they, they work like hand in hand. And I try to do both as much as I can. Mm -hmm. So if we're putting in a restoration, like an installation, a project, then I try to incorporate questions that we can sort of answer. And so we've done questions about like, how often do we need to water these plants? Mm -hmm. What size containers do we really need to be using to have like good success? Uh, we also do it in like propagation too. Like what you know with pre-treatments or what soil do I need to use or different things so I try to incorporate as much as I can like a question that we're trying to answer to sort of help us succeed more in the future and not just always assume like this is the way it's supposed to be mm -hmm. and I don't know why just because someone told me at school or another practitioner told me and that's the way like I need to do it so I always try to think how can we do this better and, mm -hmm. and what is going to give us like the best result? Because at the end, we do have limited resources, limited time, not, you know, not only like materials, but labor and a lot of our sites are, are not easily accessible. Right. And do I really need to be out there 
every two weeks watering or can it come out there every four weeks? Mm -hmm. And that's perfectly fine. I find this whole process of sort of theory and practice constantly informing each other to be super inspiring. I love that Billy uses ecological restoration to answer restoration ecology questions, which then contributes back to the practice of ecological restoration. And while we're here talking about this amazing native plant-centric form of restoration that Billy and the California Botanic Garden engage in, I want to take a quick detour for a second and shout out some other very cool types of restoration that exist out there. So just to back up for a second, the Society for Ecological Restoration provides a very succinct definition of ecological restoration, calling it the process of assisting the recovery of an ecosystem that has been degraded, damaged, or destroyed. You'll notice that this definition is very broad. There are all kinds of ways that people are assisting the recovery of degraded ecosystems all the time. One example of this is restoration of spawning habitat for salmon. There was a project a couple of years ago on the American River where crews brought in truckload after truckload of salmon gravel, which is just a bunch of rocks that are the right size for salmon to use to lay their eggs. Other restoration efforts might include things like beaver dam analogs, which you may remember if you listened to the beaver episode at the end of season one. But they're basically fake beaver dams made by humans, and they make it easier for beavers to get reestablished in an area where they're either struggling or altogether absent. You'll also probably remember from both the salmon and the beaver episodes that both of those animals are keystone species. So when they start to come back to an area, they benefit just about every other living thing in that system. Interestingly, both of these seemingly very different animals also benefit from the native plants being restored along the riverbanks. So the plants are often an important part of many types of restoration projects. I think the next thing Billy says here is a great example of this. Because there is a lot of degradation and habitat loss out there. And so we have a lot of disturbance and that disturbance can create invasive species, like basically taking over and making monocultures. Mm-hmm. And so you'll see a lot of hills, like if you drive through like Orange County, you'll see a lot of the hills on the freeways that are just covered in yellow in the spring. And you're like, oh, it's so beautiful, yellow hills. Mm-hmm. But that's all like invasive black mustard. Oh. <laughs> so while yes, it is beautiful flowers, they're not like native to this landscape. So that will come in through fires or people clearing areas, or it can come through for a lot of different reasons that we do have habitat loss or degradation of habitat. So we're trying to then put it back in the best way we know how. And I don't think that we fully know how yet. We're still figuring it out. Yeah, that's part of the process. Yeah, part of the process is still figuring it out. Yeah. And so with all of these best management practices that we do, it's trying to not create like further degradation. Mm -hmm. Like while we are like, oh, yes, we're planting out all of these plants and that's great. We're getting rid of the invasives. We're doing all of these things. But if we're out planting non-native pathogens and then those are escaping into the adjacent intact habitat, are we really doing restoration? Mm. So we're trying to make sure that we're not causing further degradation. And that's painful, right? That's extremely painful because you're like, I'm trying so hard to like do this good in the world, and then to feel like something could go wrong where it actually is a step backwards. Yeah, and there is, like I said, there's a lot of things that we don't understand. So hopefully I'm not doing further degradation. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) 
You know, though, I mean, it's hard to imagine in those places that have become a monoculture that, like, it's going backwards. Yeah. When you're bringing all this biodiversity and all of this life. So. Yeah. And so, yeah, we don't always do container plants. We we do other things as well. So I, I put in a proposal recently that we're hoping will get funded that's just going to look at passive restoration in the Angeles. And that just means going out there and just removing the non-natives mm-hmm. and continue, not just removing them once, but continually like knocking them back and mm-hmm. removing them because there should be in an area that was recently intact, there should be a native seed bank in there. Sure. So I look at those sorts of things too. And I do have multiple different like seed broadcasting experiments Mm. that I'm working on because seed is considered cleaner material than container plants, Mm -hmm. but seed is not always successful. Sure. And so where I've done seed experiments, where I've looked at putting in different pre-treatments or broadcasting them at different times of year. And, but I keep as a constant weed control because that is the thing that the weeds are just such good competitors. Right. So we do other things besides just the container plant installation to try to combat, hopefully, yeah, that introduction of Mm. non-native pathogens. One of the really tricky things here is that we can't, of course, go back to a time before non-native pathogens and invasive plants had been introduced. These complexities are part of the world we're living in now, and we have to understand them in order to move forward effectively. And there are a lot more complexities to this picture as well, like the presence of these massive cities we've built and suburbs and farmland and just truly staggering numbers of humans living in the world. We've made such significant impacts on the land, often extracting from it, displacing wildlife and fragmenting habitat. And unfortunately, we can't just undo those things and go back to the bucolic dream that I think many of us long for on one level or another. But my friend Zara Wiley, the guest from the Oak episode back in season one, taught me a fantastic term that I think is really important here. The term is reconciliation ecology. And the idea is that because we've altered and harmed so much of the land, we can't rely solely on traditional conservation efforts to prevent ecosystem collapse. We have to also find ways of reconciling the spaces where we live with the natural world. We have to take human-dominated spaces and make them places where biodiversity is welcomed and encouraged. I'm going to give you just a couple of examples of reconciliation, but please know that this is just the absolute tip of the iceberg, and there is so, so much more to this. Okay, so here are some examples. Wildlife crossings like the Wallace-Annenberg, setting aside certain amounts of farmland for native plants like wildflowers for pollinators or hedgerows for birds, Redesigning urban green spaces to reduce the amount of lawn and increase native plant populations in our cities. Rewilding rivers like the LA River that has been lined with concrete by busting some of that concrete out of the bottom. Using localized rainwater capturing systems and groundwater recharge ponds as much as possible. Using native plants to stop erosion rather than pouring concrete or constantly redigging irrigation canals. Using bat boxes and owl boxes so that predators can replace some of our pesticide use. And so, so much more. All of these are ways of reconciling, at least to some degree, with the natural world. And to me, using reconciliation and restoration simultaneously is just an incredibly powerful approach. So let's get back into how restoration actually gets done. How does Billy figure out what to plant? What I try to do a lot as much as possible is have a reference site. So I have a site that I'm trying to replicate and that will help, that will give me my plant palette 
-hmm. and sort of like what it should look like in the end. And that's my goal of what I'm trying to do is replicate that reference site rather than just coming up with it in my head. Oh, I think this would be good here. Oh, I think this would be good there. And then collecting all of those seeds very local, as local as possible. So I'm not introducing genetics from another area. Sure. So those are also our like ethical considerations that we put into restoration. Mm -hmm. Can you walk me through the process? And so talking about collecting seeds, that's probably one of the earlier phases, right? Yeah. Of the project. So it depends on who's sort of coming to us with the project. If I come up with the project on my own, first you have to like pick what needs to be restored. Mm -hmm. So I'll go out into the landscape of wherever my area is and I'll look for areas covered in invasives. Mm -hmm. Those, that's the areas I want to target. I don't want to target areas that have like good native cover. Sure. And that is a problem sometimes in restoration is that areas that don't really need to be restored are having some like restoration. But um, I know I try to tar I want to have an area that is like covered in black mustard or covered in invasive grass. And those are the areas I'm going to target. And so it'll be like picking a site and then, like I said, finding intact habitat in the area and seeing like what's there and maybe what should be in this area. And then so we'll get that sort of figured out. And then we'll go out, like I said, and get the voucher specimens to make sure I know what species I'm collecting. So we'll press the plants, we'll ID them, and then we'll go out and we'll get the seed. And so we like to get seed from as many plants as we can, not just all one plant. Our goal is usually 50 plants. Okay. That's not always possible if that species is just not super prevalent in that habitat. But I don't usually like to leave out species just because like, oh, there's only 20 of you. I'm going to sure. take you off the list. So we try to collect from as many as we can to get as much of the local genetics as we can. And that will help with the site being more resilient to things that could come in the future. And so we'll take that seed back. Sometimes we have to clean it. We'll clean it and we'll process it. And then we'll sow it. We'll give it its pre-treatments or whatever. Then we grow it out, get it into whatever size container we think is appropriate with whatever soil we think is appropriate. As babies, we treat them like babies. Mm -hmm. We give them nice shade, nice water, nice fluffy soil, everything. <laughs> and then we try to get them ready to go out into the world. We'll give them rougher soil, put them in the hard sun. We'll water them less to get them ready to go out and, and live their lives in the wild. So then we'll go out. The site usually will have to be cleared uh, and we'll try to clear it of the invasives as many times as we can as mm -hmm. budget allows. And then we'll install. So installing would be digging the holes, watering, planting. Um, sometimes we'll have to have underground cages, above ground cages, depending on... Like do deer eat this? Or yes. Like those yeah. Kinds of like deer or who, you know, whoever's going to come, we have to think about all of those things. If we need to give them like mulch pads to hold in water and then, yeah, so we'll water them in and then we'll come back at different intervals to keep watering them. Mm. So you don't install irrigation lines. So it's probably not water we, piped out to all these areas, right? Yeah. So there isn't water is very difficult in these areas. Some people do install like very minimal irrigation lines just to move the water around the site. But as far as like tapping into a water source, no. It's like not even available probably. It's not even available. Water is a major issue for us. So we have to usually haul out all of our water. Do you bring like a big water truck or something? Like, yeah. So we have like water barrels for like smaller projects that we put on our trucks. We have to rent like big water trucks yeah. that will fill with water and then we have to refill it. 
So the Forest Service has helped us before letting us use uh, water from a fire station, or we can get a meter put on um, a fire hydrant. Uh-huh. Yeah, so we can refill from a fire hydrant, or we there's like local businesses that we've gone to that will fill the water for us and we pay them a fee. So we always have to find water and truck it in, and that's like one of the hardest things to do. And that's what we're really limited on is the watering. So that plant maintenance is is very difficult. Yeah. <laughs> and that will, can continue for years. Really? Yeah. I mean, you definitely want to get them through like the first summer. Mm-hmm. I mean, ideally, if you can go longer, but yeah, you have to get them like through the first summer because mm-hmm. sometimes if you just plant in the fall, I mean, they're just all going to die in the summer. Mm-hmm. So you have to like get them through that. And if you can go longer, longer. And the question is, how long do you go before you, you know, cut the cord? Billy said it varies based on the plant species and the type of environment, how often these plants need to be watered. But one number that she did throw out was about once a month at one particular site. But if you think about how many restoration sites they're working with and the amount of time that these places need to continue to be watered, that's a pretty significant investment. So it can be very expensive as far as like container plant installation, which is why, yeah, like seed, it's like, oh, it's... (laughs) A lot cheaper. Yeah, see, I can put that in my, like, Toyota Corolla, (laughs) you know, put it in the back and just drive it out there. Yeah, and that's why, yeah, we're looking at more, you know, broadcast and especially remote areas. Like, Mm -hmm. I have areas where I have to get the water really far away. We have water pumps. We pump water to barrels. I try to get water as close to our plantings as possible. So, you know, we could be up, like, massive hills and I have to drag water barrels. I have to drag fire hoses. And then we're pumping water up. So then we can run hoses and have it like gravity come down. Sure, yeah, yeah. And so that's like a system that we use to really, because you you don't want to have everybody going to the water truck to get water and carrying it all around. It's just not efficient. Uh And so we're always trying to be efficient with our time and our resources and getting, yeah, getting the water where it needs to be. And that's where people will do some minimal irrigation lines just to move the water to places. Mm -hmm. And then they can then use the water at that source to either use a hose or bucket water or whatever they need to do Mm -hmm. to get the plants watered. But it's a lot, it's a lot of work. So yeah, so like this past April, we installed 900 oaks out at a, you know, a relatively remote site. Mm -hmm. And it's getting the large trucks out there. It's getting the people out there. It's making sure we have the water, making sure we have the plants, making sure the plants aren't, you know, just thrown all over the ground and all our tools are sanitized and all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. So keeping in thought also like best management practices, not bringing in mulch from some place we have no idea what their practices are and... Wow. It's a lot. It's a lot. That's a lot. You have to you have to know so much about so many things yeah. to do it effectively. And going back to sourcing the plants. Yeah. Like that we talked we kind of scratched the surface on that, but like for those oak trees, right? Like nine hundred oak trees, that's a ton. Where did you get all those acorns? Oaks are my favorite trees and I saw some of them in the nursery and so I had to follow up on this. Yeah, so we collected out in the forest as much as I mean I'm not saying we over collected. We definitely didn't over collect right. because we, you know, we're not going to collect all the seed or all the acorns off of one plant or mm-hmm. one tree at all. We're not really going to collect more than like 10% okay, yeah, of a plant. Good. Yeah. So we're not like wiping out populations anywhere, but yeah, I had to just scout and scout and scout. And with the drought, some trees are just not producing acorns. Mm-hmm. And so you just have to just keep scouting and scouting and scouting and looking and looking. And we actually had grown 8,000. But, you know, we had to collect probably 
16,000 acorns or something to get that. And yeah, we have to search far and wide. And I'm not going super, super far to collect those because I want them to be local. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So yeah, it's a lot, a lot of work. And we just have bags and bags and <laughs> bags of acorns. Well, and then it's like, what about weevils? And what about like all of these different things, right, that contaminate yeah. potentially the acorns? And there goes your 16,000 down to eight, I guess. Huh? Yeah. And so we will put them in sealed boxes mm -hmm. with like pest strips mm. to like kill stuff that's in there. But yeah, I mean, sometimes it's just already killed. I mean, already killed the, yeah. the seed or whatever but yeah so we'll try to mitigate it with putting them with the pest strips and trying to get all the insects killed but yeah it's all it's a lot it's a lot of work it's definitely a lot of work that's very multifaceted and then as well. yeah but then for that project it was also like we grew all these plants but then there wasn't enough money to plant them there wasn't enough you know enough money to do maintenance watering and stuff like that we weren't in charge of doing all that but then like our partners had to be go and that's why the project was delayed our partners mm -hmm. had to go out and find more money out from other grants or other you know communities to get the money to outplant them so you know like okay we grew them and now oh, no, there's nothing to do with them mm -hmm. you know <laughs> so then we're on hold to get them to get them in the ground so there's all of those those things to consider as well and a lot of the funding that we work on can be on short time intervals. And you don't think it's like a short time interval, but it is in the world of restoration. So we can get a grant and it can be like two years. But those two years, and it depends on like the, when that grant starts, that could take me the whole two years just to collect and grow. Sure. And then maybe they can get them installed, maybe in that two years but then there's no money for maintenance. So we don't want to like not apply for the grants or not do the projects because we don't have like back-end funding, but we're always then trying to get more funding because we don't want to just walk away from a project sure. and be like... Do all that work and then have how many of the plants die. Yeah, right? and then just walk water. away. So we're always trying to look for more funding to continue our work and not, yeah, like I said, not just walk away from the sites because I've had to walk away from sites where I can't find more funding and it's not, it's not nice, you oh, know, it's not, <laughs> yeah, it's that's not really nice, painful. but yeah, that's Have why. Have you ever gone back to one of those sites just to see like what survived? Yeah. I mean, we've, I've gone back to sites like to do more monitoring and stuff. Cause I ran out of money and I'm like, I just go back for free and like do the work because oh. I'm like, I, this is like, I'm not going to waste <laughs> all this work and then not get like the results. Uh-huh. <laughs> Billy has to get creative to find funding, so she's always doing things like writing grants and asking the Forest Service if they have any old vehicles they'd like to donate. So if you're ever looking for a good way to give back and help make the world a better place, definitely remember the California Botanic Garden. You can donate right on their website. But one of the other great resources that Billy taps into is a network of professionals doing this work who freely share the knowledge they've accumulated through experience. They then apply that learning to practices at the nursery, ultimately impacting the work they do in a variety of ecosystem types. How many types of ecosystems do you work in, do you oh think? Oh, gosh. <laughs> like chaparral. <laughs> chaparral, coastal sage, the coastal dunes, the desert, 
Oak Woodland. Yeah, Oak Woodland. Yeah. Wow. And probably, those are all probably general phrases, right? Like, yeah. you probably have subsections of each of those. Yeah, and so all, yeah, all sorts of different habitats. And then we also work a lot with rare plants, too. Mm-hmm. And so growing rare plants. And so that can be, it's not like totally different than common plants, but it's another sort of layer of mm-hmm. trying to figure out how to propagate rare plants, mm-hmm. which we haven't even really I'm going to talk to Naomi about, about that, yeah, because okay. I'm like, I'm super curious about it. Yeah, so Naomi does more like the botany end, mm-hmm. and then we do like the horticultural okay, end. Cool. The conversation about rare plants is also in that California native plant episode that I mentioned earlier. What my main focus with the rare plants is figuring out like how to grow them, propagation mm-hmm. methods. And then from there, it can be restoration. We have then done the next step and gone mm-hmm. to restoration and figure out, okay, now how do we restore this plant? But the first step is really figuring out how to grow it. Mm -hmm. And some rare plants, you're like, why are you a rare plant? You Mm -hmm. are like, you're a weed. Interesting. Like I, so I have this one plant from Laguna Beach, and it is like a weed. Like you can just do whatever to it. You could not water it. You can forget about <laughs> it. It's super, super rare. And you look at it, and you're like, "Why are you rare?" And then you realize, "Oh, you're from Laguna Beach, and everybody took out your habitat." Super developed. Yeah, it's all developed. Uh, and so that's why it's rare. It's not rare because it's hard to grow. Right. And then there's other plants that are just ridiculously hard to grow, yeah. and you're like, "Okay, this is why you're rare." Well, yeah. And then you wonder too, like, how many uh, species do you just not know about? How many are already extinct, right? Because that. Laguna Beach is like so developed. Yeah. And if it's that hard for a weed to hang on, think about those plants that are really hard to grow. That's, yeah. That's really sad. Sorry, I realized that was kind of a depressing little revelation, but it's also a good example of why it's important to take care of what we've got left. Is there one particular site that you have been part of restoring that you're most proud of? <sighs> okay, so I have this one site that we call Oliver Canyon. I'm not going to say it's like the most successful, but okay. So we, we planted it and a fire came through like a month later. And so we were like, we were super discouraged, but then we were like, okay, we just went out and we just kept watering Uh our plants. We just kept watering and watering and plants did come back. Hey. And uh, yeah, so plants came back and then we're like, okay, we're going to expand the restoration and we're going to like keep going. Cause that's the idea is you want to like keep going to where all the non-natives are mm-hmm. and then another fire came through Stop. <laughs> no. and th- this was not an easy site whatever it was hard to get to oh. we couldn't get water to the site it was very hilly we were planting on steep hills how demoralizing is that but for some reason even though this site was like so hard and at the same time we were doing another site sort of in like a it was in the forest, and it, but it was like a picnic area, mm-hmm. and it was easy to access, mm-hmm. easy to get water, all of these things. But for some reason, all of us on the crew really liked this other site, even though it was so difficult. We had multiple <laughs> fires go through, but it just like, I don't know, it just became like our favorite. Yeah. And yeah, that site like put us through the ringer. That's the site where I had multiple different experiments going. Mm-hmm. I have one of my seed experiments going there. That's the site where we lost funding. Oh. And so 
even though it's like the worst site and we had so many issues, it still like holds like a place in my heart of like, that's our, that's our site. Yeah. What's it called again? It, we call it Oliver Canyon. Oliver Canyon. Yeah. But it's in, it's in the Angeles in like the Lakeview Terrace area. Mm -hmm. And the neighbors hated us there. <laughs> they tried to lock us out of the site every, even though we're on like Why? forest land. Because it's where they went and like rode their horses oh. and they, I don't know, they just didn't like us there. We were like a nuisance to them and we would, I guess we would scare their horse and not on purpose, but right, I mean, sure. just our presence would like scare their horses. They didn't like us there at all. Oh no. <laughs> but so even though we have just all these issues there, I still like, that's still like my favorite site. <laughs> it reminds me of like how, you know, they've done this study on like how if you put your own furniture together, then you like, like it more. Okay, so this is called the IKEA effect. And apparently, participants in a 2011 study valued furniture that they put together at 63% higher than equivalent furniture that they did not put together. So they would have paid 63% more money for furniture that they put together. Yeah, you know, it's like if you had to do more work, it almost like it bonds you to that yeah, site because you so had to definitely, take care of it. Yeah, we're definitely like bonded to that site. There was like rock slides there where we couldn't get to the site where we had to clear, you know, we had to clear. There was like flooding that took out like a whole section of the road. We couldn't get in. We got trucks stuck there constantly, but yeah, it's still oh my, my favorite. God. Oh my God, that's amazing. How it's, how's it doing now? Well, the drought has been really bad, uh -huh. but a lot of our plants are still alive hey. and are still doing well. So I'm not going to say it's doing like the best right. it could be doing, but it's not, it hasn't reverted back to what it was before, which was a invasive grass monoculture. Fantastic. And so that's hey, an improvement. That's massive progress. Yeah, that's so an improvement. So more probably species are being supported in that yeah, area Yeah, and so I, I still do look for funding for that site, mm -hmm. but I don't know. I don't know if, if I'll find it. I've submitted multiple grants for that site, but I haven't. None of them have stuck yet. Right. <laughs> now, if people want to visit a restored area, are there any like really accessible places people can go and see that have been restored and, and kind of get a sense of what? a finished or yeah, a mostly think, finished? I think at like conservancy lands, like the Palos Verdes Peninsula Land Conservancy, they do restoration there all the time, mm -hmm. but they, it's a conservancy for people to come in. They have hiking trails. Nice. They have all of these things. In the Santa Monica Mountains, they do restoration and they have hiking trails. So people can see restoration in action. And a lot of times you'll see signs like, don't walk in this area, restoration mm -hmm. in progress. Mm -hmm. You'll see that all over. I don't think people always pay attention to it, but right. <laughs> but you'll see those all over. Yeah, restoration in progress or habitats trying to recover. Like they just don't want people to walk on it so the habitat can come back on sure. its own. So yeah, you can kind of see them um, if you go into the, the urban wildlife interface. Cool. Okay, what plant do you hate and despise? above all other plants. Is there like a singular plant that you're like, we can't get rid of this thing and it's, it oh. chokes out what we're trying to do or anything like that? No, well, not an invasive. There is actually this rare plant that I really despise. Really? <laughs> not what I expected you to say. <laughs> because it was, I still haven't figured it out. And I actually, even though I despise it, I was just talking to Naomi about trying to get some grant funding for yeah. it. <laughs> you're like grudgingly helping it. Yeah, because... Oh, we just couldn't get it. We could germinate it uh -huh. and we could grow it. And then it just kept dying and dying and dying. We tried uh -huh. all these different soils. We tried even the native soil from the site. We tried all these different watering uh -huh. things and it just kept dying. And I was just like, I hate you. Yes, that makes <laughs> it's sense. It's just so annoying. And so even though it's like super rare, I, I think I told Naomi, like, I want to get the grant funding, but I hate this plant. <laughs> 
have you ever figured out how to grow it successfully? <laughs> well, I haven't gotten the funding right, for right, right. it. But yeah, I mean, if I do, I'm still going to try. What's the plant called? It's an astragalus. Astragalus. Yeah. I tried to look this up, and Calscape has 177 entries under astragalus. So I'm not sure which one Billy is mad at, but a lot of them have like milk vetch in the name or milkwort. So if you're familiar with that plant family, it's somewhere in there. But like as far as invasives, yeah, they're all like a little annoying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's not like one in particular that you're like, this guy. No, I mean, I mean, the mustard is always causing us problems. Mm -hmm. But not, I mean, none of them that I'm like, I just hate you. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But yeah, it, it's it is more on the horticultural end where the plants will really like piss me off. Yeah, and yeah, I'll be like, why do you not grow? <laughs> yeah, no, that makes <laughs> why sense. do you keep dying? And that's where I'll get like really frustrated. I, but I keep trying. I don't give up. I keep trying. I'm like, well, we, we, we got to figure this out. There's got to be a way. <laughs> there has to be, be a way. It's yeah. still, the plant is still in existence. There's yeah, got there to be a way to grow way. it. All right. Is there a plant that you love to use in restoration projects? Um, not particularly. I, I more just focus on, I think, what is appropriate for the site. There isn't like, I'll go anywhere and use this one plant. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, it's always just what seems appropriate for the site mm -hmm. that I'll, you know, I'll, I'll put in the plant palette. But yeah, I mean, not, no, not really. Yeah. So after talking with you, my question is, how can people help, right? Can mm -hmm. people like go and try to restore an area independently? But now hearing this, I'm like, maybe that would be like spreading no. disease or spreading the wrong species. So like, what yeah. can people do that's actually helpful and not harmful? I think like volunteer with your local restoration practitioners mm -hmm. really it's like if you have a local nursery that does restoration or you have a conservancy, a lot of times they take volunteers or, yeah, just an organization that's sort of involved like tree people mm -hmm. or something like that where you have people leading you that know what they're doing so then they can sort of guide you mm -hmm. and they'll give you the plant to plant, you know, that hopefully they locally source. Right. And they've taken care of preventing yeah. disease and all yeah of those and they'll, of they'll tell you like the best management practices you know of what to do and how to water it and things like that but i i wouldn't really recommend people just like do gorilla restoration mm -hmm. because if they're buying plants you know who knows where they're buying plants mm -hmm. from i think you can buy you know native plants from home depot or something but who knows where they came right. from Billy did say that she thought collecting a few seeds from a native plant and helping them disperse nearby didn't strike her as too problematic. But she also pointed out that plants have their own dispersal methods, so it might not actually be that helpful. I think there's a really interesting bigger ethical question here, though, which is about how much we should intervene when our interventions might do harm, especially when the alternative to intervening is very far from an ideal state, such as an invasive monoculture. I don't pretend to know the answer to this question or even have enough information to start to answer it. But I do know that there are plenty of opportunities to get involved and volunteer for restoration projects all across the state and probably far beyond. You can usually find these opportunities through your local chapter of the Native Plant Society or on websites of land conservancies or conservation groups. And if you live in the Sacramento Valley, my friend Malcolm, who I actually recently met while volunteering at a local restoration project, started a website and Instagram account dedicated to sharing information about when and where you can volunteer for restoration projects in the area. It's at Sac Valley Restoration Days on Instagram, and I'll link the website in the show notes. 
And please also send me a message if you know about other folks or organizations in other locations around the state who are compiling multiple events into one calendar, because I would love to share those hubs with people on social media. Okay, last question. So you've been doing this work for a while now. Mm -hmm. What about it still just blows your mind or takes your breath away when you get to do one of these projects? I think just seeing the transformation of the landscape or just seeing hopefully like success. So we, we did a restoration of this rare species across 10 sites and we had like 95% success of this very like rare plant. And that just kind of sometimes like blows my mind. Like, Oh, we, we did this restoration and it was successful. (laughs) Sometimes that's surprising. And I was doing that with a partnering organization and they were like, dang, I'm just going to start restoring this rare plant. I have better success restoring this than I do this this common species that should be super easy. Uh So sometimes I'm just like blown away, yeah, just by our success. And sometimes I'm just blown away about like how much we can do with the limited resources that we have and really Mm -hmm. just like cobbling things together from anywhere that we can Mm -hmm. and really just like networking with other places and just pulling things together. And sometimes you're like, I I don't know how I did this. Mm -hmm. Like usually even like my first day out in the outplanting, there's so much prep to it to get just to that outplanting. I'm like, I don't even know how, how I even got here, Mm -hmm. (laughs) how I even pulled all of this together to get to this place. And I'm just like astounded. That's amazing. amazing. (laughs) All right. Well, Billy, thank you so much. I really appreciate all the time you took. To show me around and talk to me. Yeah, hopefully. Hopefully it's interesting. (laughs) Oh, very, very. Thank you. One of the things I love about restoration is that it gives us a way to connect more deeply with the natural world. Going for a hike and admiring the greenery is wonderful, and I encourage everyone who can to get out and do it whenever they can. But if we put plants in the ground ourselves, we become personally invested in their survival because we have invested a little bit of our lives into theirs. And no shade at Ikea because half of my furniture is from there. But the plants we're bringing back are so much more valuable than my Hemdis bookcase. A big thank you to Billy for making the time for this interview and showing me around the nursery, and also for all that she has invested into the lives of so many plants here in California, so often stretching limited resources to make that possible. I also want to thank the California Botanic Garden, especially CalBG's Director of Conservation Programs, Naomi Fraga. Thank you, Naomi, for all of the time you put into making both this episode and the native plant episode possible. There were so many emails. And if you're listening to this and you live anywhere close to Claremont, definitely check out the Botanic Garden's website to see all of the cool events they've got coming up, including their family bird festival on February 19th, which is only $10 for adults and $4 for kids. They've even got art classes and yoga in the garden, all well surrounded by an incredible array of native plants. So go to calbg.org to learn more about all of those events, including dates, times, and prices. Also, I'm coming in at the 11th hour here to add some facts because my friend Eric just shared an article with me about hedgerows and how they do so much more than I suggested earlier. They do provide habitat for birds, but they also attract pollinators and sequester carbon. Big shout out to Eric DeCock for bringing me great information at the exact right moment. I'll link that article from Cap Radio in the show notes in case you want to learn more about all the cool things hedgerows do too. 
Something from my week is that I took a whole day to just kind of wander around Sacramento and listen to beautiful literary podcasts while I got a fancy green juice smoothie and then sat and worked in a library with a lovely view of a park and finally tried a new ramen place that was just so good. I don't know if that day seems noteworthy to other people or not, or if I just need to get out more, but it was just the best balance of calm and productive and restorative that I've experienced for a long time. So thank you for indulging me and listening to that. Also, Golden State Naturalist turned one year old on Friday, so thank you for being here to start the podcast second year with me and for listening all the way to the end of the episode. Okay, I'll see you on the next episode of Golden State Naturalist. Bye! The song is called I Don't Know by Grapes, and you can find a link to that song and the Creative Commons license in the show notes.